Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we will be discussing the sinking of SS El Faro, an American-flagged row-row cargo ship that sank tragically in 2015. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, extreme weather, raw eyewitness accounts, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. There will be some terms in Spanish, a language in which I am not fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. Please also be aware that this tragedy is incredibly recent, and to be respectful to the families of the victims, some details may be left out. Today our story begins in the Sun Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Corporation's shipyard in Chester, Pennsylvania in the United States for the Navieres de Puerto Rico Steamship Company. The ship that would become El Faro was ordered in 1973 as Puerto Rico, being laid down in yard number 670 on April 11, 1974. She would be launched on November 1, 1974, passing her sea trials and being completed on January 16, 1975. Puerto Rico, or El Faro as we know her, displaced 31,515 gross tons and was 791 feet in length after being lengthened in 1992. She had a 94-foot beam and a 42-foot draft, being propelled by a single-shaft double-reduction compound steam turbine. She averaged 22 knots for her service speed, and as for her crew, we're going to go off her final crew, which was 33 people. These 33 people were 5 Poles and 28 Americans. The ship had a white superstructure that was in the aft section of the ship, and her hull was dark navy blue. For those interested, the ship's call sign was WFJK, her IMO number was 7395351, and her MMSI number was 3682080000. Though not much is known about her career before the accident, as Puerto Rico, she would run cargo to and from the eastern seaboard for 15 years until she was purchased by Saltchuck Resources, the parent company for her new owners, Tote Maritime, in 1991. There, she would be renamed Northern Lights. For her new owner, Saltchuck, she would frequent Tacoma, Washington, near Seattle, and Anchorage, Alaska. As we briefly mentioned earlier, the ship would be refitted in 1992 at the Atlantic Marine Shipyard in Mobile, Alabama. A 90-foot mid-body that included another cargo hold and spar deck would be added to the ship, contributing to that extra length we talked about. She'd be modified once more by the same company in order to add lift-on-slash-lift-off cranes so she could load and unload her own cargo more easily. As well as this, an additional 4,875 long tons of fixed ballast was added to the ship, raising the load line about 2 feet so additional cargo could be carried without compromising the ship. Unfortunately, a damage stability assessment was not done, and it probably should have been. Interestingly, the ship did have a small military career. 
In February of 2003, before the American-led invasion of Iraq, starting March 19th of that year, Northern Lights was chartered by the Military Sea Lift Command to partake in Operation Iraqi Freedom. As part of this, she ferried military equipment and U.S. Marines from San Diego, California, to Kuwait. While in the Persian Gulf near Iran, on March 19th, the day the invasion of Iraq began, the vessel came under fire from missiles which exploded in the water around her and rocked the ship, but she sustained no damage and no one was injured, thankfully. She would continue to be chartered through to October 2005, and she made 25 voyages in that month and 49 port calls. In total, 12,200 pieces of military equipment were transported by the ship, weighing in at a total of 81,000 short tons. Then President of Tote, Mr. Robert McGee, and the ship's crew were praised by U.S. Air Force General Norton A. Schwartz. He was quoted as saying, quote, You, Robert McGee, and your team of professionals, the crew of El Faro, showcased the U.S. flag industry at its best. After her tenure as a soldier was finished in 2006, Tote transferred ownership of the vessel to its subsidiary, Sea Star Lines, and the name of the vessel was changed to SS El Faro. She returned to her original route along the East Coast, serving as a sort of lifeline between Puerto Rico and the United States. Something we do have to note before we get into her final voyage are the poor conditions the vessel was in. Curiously, despite former crew members describing the ship as, quote, a rust bucket that was not, quote, supposed to be on the water, and the fact that it suffered major drainage problems as well as leaks in the galleyed compartment, and even that there were apparently holes in the ship's decks as recently as two months before her last voyage, El Faro passed two inspections. One was done by the United States Coast Guard, and the inspections took place in March and June of 2014. In February of 2015, she completed the American Bureau of Shipping Class and Statutory Surveys. The National Transportation Safety Board said the ship met stability criteria and that weekly safety drills were performed, and so she left Jacksonville, Florida for San Juan, Puerto Rico for her final voyage on September 25, 2015 at 8.10 p.m. Because of the sad state of the ship, former crew members were shocked she'd set sail, especially with a major storm smack dead in the middle of the planned course. Hurricane Joaquin's path would cross El Faro's, and that was certain. During this final voyage, El Faro was carrying 391 shipping containers, roughly 294 trailers and cars, and the crew of 33 we mentioned earlier. Immediately after departing, Captain Davidson planned on using El Faro's normal, direct route to San Juan, since he thought that would put them south of Hurricane Joaquin. However, it is known that the hurricane and tropical storm wind fields were projected to be near the ship's normal route, so he should have taken more evasive action, in my opinion. At the time of departure, Hurricane Joaquin was still classified as a tropical storm, but meteorologists at the National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, predicted that it would more than likely become a hurricane two days later on October 1, 2015. It was predicted to take a southwest trajectory, passing over the Bahamas. The planned route for El Faro would take the ship within 175 nautical miles of Hurricane Joaquin, where seas of at least 10 feet were highly likely. 
If you remember from previous episodes, cargo vessels, especially poorly maintained ones, don't hold up well in heavy seas since they tend to sag and break back right in the middle and sink very quickly. We have two previous episodes on similar stories. Check the cards for this video to see those if you are interested in hearing more about cargo vessels. The following day on September 30th, 2015, at 6.40 in the morning, Captain Davidson reviewed the updated weather data and he and his chief mate decided that they would alter their course slightly, moving it a bit more southward. At 8 a.m. that day, Hurricane Joaquin would become a hurricane, rapidly growing and getting more violent. Throughout the rest of September 30th and into the morning of October 1st, the storm continued brewing and moving southwest. By 11 p.m. on September 30th, the storm had reached Category 3 intensity, with reported wind speeds of 100 knots. At 11.05 p.m. on the bridge of El Faro, the third mate called upon Captain Davidson and warned him that maximum winds from Hurricane Joaquin had increased to upwards of 100 miles per hour, with the storm creeping closer and closer to the ship's intended track line. Eight minutes later, at 11.13 p.m., the third mate once again called the captain. This time he made a suggestion to divert to the south, with the second mate, Daniel Randolph, also calling around 1.20 a.m. on October 1st, 2015, to suggest a course through Crooked Island Passage near the Bahamas. Randolph would write an email to her friends and family expressing concern, quote, there's a hurricane out here and we are heading straight into it. Ominous words indeed, given the gravity of what was about to happen. Here's where things get a little cloudy, and we start going off of things recovered from the Voyage Data Recorder, or VDR, which is a ship's version of a black box. Here's what we do know. Roughly 10 hours after leaving Jacksonville, Florida, El Faro had deviated greatly from the original charted course. Around 7.30 a.m. on October 1st, less than 20 hours after departure, the Coast Guard got a satellite notification from El Faro that the vessel had lost propulsion, had a 15-degree list, and had taken on water, but the flooding was contained at the time the message came in. The Coast Guard would also receive a single ping from the ship's emergency position indicating radio beacon. The EPIRB is a type of emergency locator beacon for commercial and recreational boats. It is a portable, battery-operated radio transmitter used in emergencies to locate ships in distress and in need of immediate rescue. In the event of an emergency, the beacon is activated and transmits a continuous 406 megahertz radio signal. Search and rescue teams can use this to pinpoint the location of the distressed vessel. After this distress beacon was received, the Coast Guard tried to reach out to El Faro to no avail. Marine traffic received the last reported position for El Faro at 4.01 a.m. on October 1, 2015, indicating she was heading south by southeast at 19 knots. However, according to a different marine positioning database relayed by routers, the final position was received at 7.56 a.m. that morning, about 35 nautical miles northeast of Crooked Island. This placed the vessel in a truly unfortunate spot, right within the eye wall of the hurricane, where winds were in excess of 80 knots and waves reached heights of 20 to 30 feet, likely pummeling the cargo vessel. For anyone unfamiliar with hurricanes and their anatomy, we will go over that briefly. I'm not a meteorologist, so just keep that in mind. 
Basically, there are three main parts. The eye, which is the center of the hurricane, the eye wall, which is the part of the storm right outside the eye, and the spiral rain brands that reach out like fingers off the storm. All Atlantic hurricanes turn counterclockwise, which is from the different air pressure systems and temperatures. The most dangerous spot of the storm is the eye wall. There, the storm is the most intense, with the eye typically being relatively calm and the intensity waning the further it gets out into the rain bands. El Faro would find herself situated in the worst spot imaginable at 8 a.m. on October 1st. After the disaster, on December 13, 2016, the NTSB released a 500-page transcript of conversations recovered from the ship's VDR, and all of these conversations occurred on the bridge of the ship in the final 26 hours of the vessel remaining afloat. We aren't going to dissect everything the crew members said as to not further traumatize or re-traumatize friends and family members of the crew of El Faro, but I'll leave a link in the description for anyone who would like to read it for themselves. As for our show today, we'll give you the Cliff Notes version. The situation was rapidly deteriorating and spiraling out of control based upon the audio recovered, starting at 5.43 a.m. on October 1st, when Davidson took a phone call indicating there was a suspected flooding in the number three cargo hold, and he would send the chief mate to inspect. After this, the crew tried to assess and contain the flooding. 30 minutes after this, around 6.15 a.m., the ship lost its steam propulsion plant. At 6.54 a.m., Davidson took another call and described how horrible the situation was, saying wind was hitting the starboard side of the vessel and that the scuttle of the ship was either left open on accident or popped open as a result of the rough seas. Although acknowledging them to be in, quote, dire straits, they weren't going to abandon ship and didn't have plans on doing so. Twelve minutes later, at 7.06 a.m., Captain Davidson is heard making another phone call asking for a QI to talk to about their situation. A QI, according to Robert Siegel of NPR, is, quote, a qualified individual, an emergency point person that shipping companies must have on shore. They did have a difficult time getting in contact with the QI, and at 7.10 a.m., Davidson was heard on the phone saying the ship was listing to 10 to 15 degrees. He also said they were making a distress call to the Coast Guard, directing second mate Daniel Randolph to activate El Faro's ship security alarm system and global maritime distress and safety system. The ship security alarm system, or SSAS, is part of the ISPS code and is a regulated system that contributes to the international maritime organization's efforts to strengthen maritime security, suppress acts of terrorism, and protect against piracy against shipping. The Global Maritime Distress and Safety System, or GMDSS, is a worldwide system for automated emergency signal communication for ships at sea developed by the International Maritime Organization as part of the SOLAS Convention. Essentially, they were trying everything they could to get help as quickly as possible. At 7.15 a.m., the chief mate hurried onto the bridge, alarmed and stated that the flooding was increasing and that it was coming in from a ruptured fire main. They couldn't determine exactly how it was broken, so they didn't know how to fix it and stop the rapid flooding. Within two minutes at 7.17 a.m., the chief engineer called over the sound-powered phone, which is a phone much like a conventional telephone but doesn't use external power, that the bilge alarm was going off in, quote, to alpha. They scrambled to find a solution, the captain asking the chief mate if it was possible to pump water out of all of the cargo holds simultaneously as well as discussing the worsening list. 
The chief mate informed him that the cars in the number three cargo hold were floating and that the fire main was already underwater, so he couldn't see if water was still coming in from there or somewhere else. By 7.24 a.m., Davidson instructed the second mate to sound the general alarm and rouse the crew, giving the order to abandon ship. About a minute later, he could be heard on the bridge yelling out, Bow is down! Bow is down! Most certainly with shaking hands, he called out to the chief mate over the UHF radio shouting, quote, Get into your rafts! Throw all your rafts into the water! Everybody get off! Get off the ship! Stay together! We don't know if they did get in the rafts and make it off the ship, or if it was too late by this point. For the next several minutes, Captain Davidson can be heard trying to soothe and help a panicking helmsman to get off the bridge, with alarms heard ringing around them. We can imagine this brave, kind-hearted captain reaching a helping hand out to the helmsman when he said, quote, Work your way up here, and you're okay, come on. He also assured the helmsman, saying, I'm not leaving you, let's go. The helmsman exclaimed, quote, I need a ladder, a line, as well as, quote, I need someone to help me. After this, the VDR recording ends at 7.39 a.m. with the helmsman and Captain Davidson still on the bridge. It's absolutely heartbreaking and devastating that even in these final moments, Captain Davidson had hoped they would make it out alive. As for search and rescue, WC-130J Super Hercules aircraft of the U.S. Air Force Reserve 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron tried to locate El Faro on October 1st unsuccessfully. The following day, on October 2nd, 2015, a Coast Guard HC-130H Hercules aircraft from Coast Guard Air Station Clearwater in Florida began searching for the missing ship. USCGC Northland and an MH-60T Jayhawk helicopter from also the Coast Guard Air Station Clearwater joined in later on October 2nd with MH-65C Dolphin helicopters from Coast Guard Air Station Miami and Coast Guard Air Station in Borinquin, Puerto Rico, as well as HC-144A Ocean Sentry fixed-wing patrol aircraft also joining in to look for El Faro, but there was no sign of her or her missing crew. Despite dangerous and violent hurricane conditions with wind speeds of upwards of 100 knots at an altitude of 1,000 feet, waves up to 40 feet, and visibility less than one nautical mile, aircraft flew all day on October 3rd, searching for El Faro. Conditions improved on October 4th as Hurricane Joaquin moved northeast away from the search area, and wind speeds lowered to around 15 knots, with visibility clearing up entirely. Wanting to take advantage of the clear weather, the helicopter remained in flight for 11 hours, having to refuel twice while searching. A second HC-130, the USCGC Charles Sexton and the USCGC Resolute were deployed as well to join the search. The Coast Guard was desperately trying to find and rescue the crew of El Faro, deploying a multitude of personnel. Overnight, Resolute and Northland continued their search, engineers donning night vision goggles as they scanned the ocean. The U.S. Navy provided P-8A Poseidon fixed-wing aircraft from the Naval Air Station in Jacksonville to aid the search on October 5th, with three Crowley Maritime tugboats also getting in on the search. Search and rescue efforts were pretty much around the clock by this time, until later on October 5th, a devastating find would change everything. A diver discovered an unidentified body in a survival suit, presumed to be from El Faro. The body was not recovered, with the divers saying the body was entirely unrecognizable due to the head of the person being three times normal size. 
It was left to be recovered later that day, but due to a failure in the positioning device attached to it, it was never recovered. Several unopened survival suits from El Faro were later recovered. Also discovered on October 5th were a deflated life raft and an unoccupied, heavily battered lifeboat, one of the two that were aboard El Faro. Each of the two lifeboats could carry up to 43 people and were stocked with a few days' worth of food and water. Because of these findings, the ship was declared lost at sea, believed to have sunk in roughly 15,000 feet of water, the search and rescue effort transforming into a search and recovery effort. On October 6, 2015, the U.S. Air Force and Air National Guard provided three more HC-130P-J aircraft, covering a total of 183,000 square nautical miles in search of El Faro. Two debris fields would be discovered, one spanning 61 square nautical miles, located roughly 60 nautical miles northeast of the other debris field that covered 260 square nautical miles near El Faro's final position. At sunset on October 7th, it was official. The Coast Guard announced they were ending search operations. In the end, 33 people lost their lives, and there lies the true tragedy. We might be quick to criticize Captain Michael Davidson for his decision to leave Jacksonville despite knowing about Hurricane Joaquin. However, given the options available to avoid the storm, the decision was more than reasonable. It's just there wasn't sufficient action taken to avoid it, and that's why El Faro sank. We also have to remember that Captain Davidson was only human, and he was someone's family. So please, be respectful with any criticism. When she sank, El Faro had been scheduled to return to Tacoma, Washington in order to relieve a different vessel on the Tacoma to Anchorage route. Sadly, she'd never make it. Following the ship's sinking, the Coast Guard's Marine Safety Center staff took a look at El Faro's sister ship, the El Yunk. Alarmingly, El Yunk's cargo ventilation system was poor at best and most likely would have been a source of intermittent flooding while rolling in 25 to 30 foot seas like El Faro had been in. MV Isabella was ultimately chosen to replace El Faro after the sinking. As for the aftermath of the sinking, a Navy salvage team was requested on October 7th to search for the wreckage on behalf of the NTSB. Because of the sinking, Senator of Florida Bill Nelson wrote a letter to the NTSB imploring them to investigate Tote's policies when it came to severe weather and how it was handled. Nelson also cited El Faro's lifeboats as being, quote, outdated and inadequate for the conditions the crew faced. Through the Siemens Church Institute of New York and New Jersey, Tote established a fund for the families of the lost crew members on October 9th of that year. By October 14th, a family member of the deceased filed a $100 million lawsuit against Tote, citing negligence on the company's behalf for allowing a non-seaworthy vessel to sail straight into a hurricane. Honestly, seems perfectly reasonable to me. I'd do the same thing if it were my family. Another lawsuit was filed on behalf of the estate of a crew member who died in the tragedy on October 28th, the complaint stating that, quote, without power, the MVL Faro was merely a cork in the sea as the hurricane neared. By April 19th, 2016, Tote Maritime settled with 18 of the 33 families, paying out more than $7 million. It seems like a drop in the bucket when compared to the lives lost, however. By the end of October 2015, the search amped up into full gear. On October 19th, USNS Apache was dispatched from Joint Expeditionary Base Little Creek Fort Story in Virginia Beach, Virginia, 
in order to start the underwater search for El Faro in her last known location. The vessel was well prepared, equipped with an ROV, side scan sonar, and a towed pinger locator, with the crew identifying a vessel on Halloween of that year approximately 15,000 feet beneath the waves. The NTSB reported that the vessel was, quote, consistent with a cargo ship, in an upright position and in one piece. Although they had found the ship and announced they had completed its search of the sunken ship on November 16, 2015, they were unsuccessful in finding the VDR at this time. Just something to note, the hydrostatic pressure at this depth is approximately 6,688 pounds per square inch, and that can do a toll on the VDR, so time was of the essence. There would be a second and third search effort for the VDR, with the second starting on April 18, 2016, launched by the NTSB. Using RV Atlantis, a Navy-owned vessel operated by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, they were able to locate the VDR roughly 41 miles northeast of Acklands and Crooked Islands in the Bahamas on April 26th. However, due to it being too close to the ship's mast and other obstructions, they were unable to recover the VDR on this trip. During the third search effort on August 5, 2016, USNS Apache returned, recovering the VDR five days later. It was 10 months after the sinking by the time the VDR made its way to NTSB in Mayport, Florida to continue the investigation. In the end, the investigation rested on three main points to establish guilt. They criticized Captain Davidson's decision to advance into Hurricane Joaquin even though he'd received numerous calls from the crew to alter the course, and he admitted he had relied on outdated weather information from the commercial service Bon Voyage system. The Coast Guard's system of grandfathering in vessels and exempting them from the usage of close lifeboats was also criticized in the inquiry, with the obsolete lifeboats not being properly maintained, were not launched, and probably wouldn't have been useful shelter anyways. And finally, the inquiry noted Tote's failure to maintain a deteriorating and antiquated vessel. I agree with their findings, and as a result, weather systems are regularly updated to keep all ships abreast of changing weather as soon as it happens. There are twin memorials remembering El Faro's crew in Jacksonville and San Juan, with one also being located in Rockland, Maine, done by the artist Jay Sawyer. Five of the crewmen who died on El Faro were from Rockland, Maine, and so this memorial is very special for them. We hope to commemorate the lives of the crew of El Faro and to continue to keep their story alive with this episode. May they rest in peace. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us, and don't forget to check out our second channel, Speedforce Media. Tune in next Sunday for the story of MS Achille Laro, a ship that caught fire and sank in 1994 off Somalia. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.